the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme, the Anglo-Irish Treaty, an agreement that was the product of months of negotiations between the British government and the Irish Republic. In the end, the Irish delegation in London was faced with two options, sign the document as it stood or refuse and face immediate and terrible war. This day, 100 years ago, they were mere hours away from making their decision, a decision that would change the course of both our nation's histories. Tonight, we'll hear about how this fateful agreement was finalised and the highly charged, dull debates that followed. We begin this evening at Dublin Castle, for so many years the seat of the British administration in Ireland. And it's there, at the Coach House Gallery in the Dublin Castle complex, that the Anglo-Irish Treaty document will soon go on public display for the first time ever. Earlier, our producer Lorcan Clancy went along and got a sneak peek at the new exhibition, The Treaty, 1921, Records from the Archives. Okay, Lorcan, what you're getting to see here is a preview of the exhibition, which we're still fine-tuning. And this is the Treaty 1921 records from the archives. We'll have a quick walk through to give you a sense of what's what. Now, this is the coach house. That's historian John Gibney taking me on a tour of this new exhibition from the National Archives. John's an assistant editor with the Royal Irish Academy's Documents on Irish Foreign Policy series. You know, elaborate designs with newsreel footage, audio reconstructions, and most importantly, the documents that are at the heart of this all. And what we're the exhibition tells the story of the treaty negotiations, and it's a story told primarily through documents. The fledgling Irish state kept meticulous records, everything from receipts for the tea and sandwiches the plenipotentiaries enjoyed on the mailboat across the Irish Sea, to detailed accounts of the ongoing talks with the British. An interesting thing about some of the documents in the exhibition is that because Eamon de Valera didn't go to London, he had to be kept informed of what was going on in London, as did other members of the Dáil Cabinet. So some of the documents in the exhibition would be accounts of meetings with the British side, but there's no record on the British side of those meetings. You know, very often informal conversations that took place outside the formality of the conference, as it was called. And there's documents that, you know, illustrate, you know, how the treaty began to be shaped. There's one that's very striking because um, it's a draft that the treaty used at the tail end of the negotiations, where uh, the oath of fidelity to the monarch which was such a bone of contention. An original version of that had a reference to the British Empire. And at the request of the Irish negotiators, that was changed by Lord Birkenhead, one of the British negotiators, to read not British Empire, but British Commonwealth of Nations. And you can see that crossed out and in red ink, British Commonwealth of Nations has been put in. And that's important to global history because the treaty is the first document that used Commonwealth as a legal term, you know. So you've documents like that. They reveal the pain, the ins and outs of negotiations, the traffic back and forth to London, the experience of living in London. I'm Zoe Reid and I'm the Senior Conservator in the National Archives. My role in this project is I've been lucky enough to be leading the curatorial team of archivists who for over a year now have been working on putting the documents together for this exhibition. Collaborating with other institutions has been really exciting for us as an opportunity to bring and really enliven the story, which could be quite dry, because essentially what we're presenting are archival documents. They're incredibly important, they're first-hand accounts of what happened, but they are typed documents. And so working with the other partner institutions, such as the Military Archives, the National Library of Ireland and the Royal Irish Academy has been a really enriching experience and I think the visitors will get to see that when they come in to see the exhibition. My name is Dara Lynn Lenehan from my company is Epic Design. I'm an interpretive design company. We do design for exhibitions for museums and visitor experiences. 
for me, I did want to bring it something whereby you could hear some of the content and also watch some of the content and bring some visual aids to it. We came across some wonderful archival footage of the time, snippets of the plenipotentiaries in London, and then the aftermath also of them coming back to Dublin and where the debates happened in the Dáil. So all of these are on fantastic film footage, but then we also have these audio clips as you go around that you can listen to. December 5th, 1921. It was a calm, pitch-dark, foggy night as, accompanied by Eamon Broy, I hurried over to Han's place. The facts that are delivered in this exhibition, I think a lot of the country would be surprised. They're really fantastic documents, particularly when they travelled to London, the setup of their homes in London, the team that travelled with them. Many people don't know those details. I mean, the Irish delegation was much larger than the five negotiators. There were a couple of dozen people involved, you know, in all kinds of capacities. They established themselves in two townhouses in fashionable districts of London, and they had to be supplied and equipped. I mean, there's documents in there for, say, invoices for stationery, because all those documents had to be typed, and were typed by the secretarial staff like Kathleen McKenna, Alice and Ellie Lyons. One document that tends to catch people's eyes is an invoice for the hire of Rolls-Royce cars, for uh, the transport of the delegation in London because you wanted to you wanted to roll up the Downing Street in style if that's what you were doing. You know, there's an invoice from Harrods for supplies for a party held on the 10th of November 1921 because, you know, this was an intense situation the delegation was in. They had to be allowed to let off steam every now and again. So there's a whole category of documents like that. You know, not quite the ephemera, but they, they illustrate the nuts and bolts, the human realities. And now on the 100th anniversary, it's really exciting that we're getting the opportunity to do this and people will be able to come in and see documents that have been there, have been used by researchers continually over the past 100 years in terms of writing about what happened 100 years ago, but actually getting to see them and having them presented and that story. At the heart of the exhibition, of course, is the treaty itself, the Irish copy of the document signed in London in December 1921. 11 pages of typescript, about 2,000 words long, it consists of 18 articles detailing the specifics of Ireland's new relationship with Britain. There's a case for saying this is the most important document in modern Irish history because of what it did. The treaty is sometimes mistakenly assumed to have partitioned Ireland. It didn't. Ireland was already partitioned. It created, a, I suppose, a state that no longer exists, the Irish Free State, But that Irish Free State was the predecessor to the modern republic. Essentially, the legal basis of Irish independence rests upon that treaty. Whether one likes it or not, whether one agrees with its provisions or not, uh, the reality is that independent Ireland began with that document right there. And for all the the division it engendered, for all the, the horrors that came afterwards in the Civil War, the independent Ireland we have now, it wouldn't exist without the treaty. Lorcan Clancy was reporting there from the Coach House Gallery in Dublin Castle. The exhibition is called The Treaty 1921, Records from the Archives. It's open to the public from this Tuesday, the 7th of December, and it runs all the way until the end of March. Admission is free and it will be open from 10am to 5pm daily. You just have to book tickets for the time you want to visit in advance and you'll find the booking page at nationalarchives.ie.
Well, throughout this series of The History Show, we've been checking in on the treaty negotiations as they played out in real time a century ago. I'm joined now once again by Dr. Dara Gannon of University College Dublin for his final Downing Street Diary. And uh, Dara, as the negotiations drew to a close, what were the final British proposals? Did they have very specific red lines, is the, I mean, is the, uh, the phrase du jour, as it were? Did they have red lines when it came to a, a new arrangement between Ireland and, and Britain? The British proposals, which they presented the Irish uh, representatives first on the 30th of November and then are submitted to Dublin, essentially are the same as the 20th of July, submitted to de Valera during the July negotiations. And they are that the Irish must remain within the empire. They offer the Irish dominion status. And crucially, and I think it's important to talk about this in some detail, there is an oath of allegiance to the king who will be uh, recognised as head of state as part of this arrangement. So those are essentially the red lines. The the British government, while history seems to be otherwise, the British government were not overly concerned about Ulster because they ostensibly offered the Irish an olive branch of a boundary commission should Ulster Unionists refuse to enter into this new free state. And the likes of Collins and Griffith and indeed the Irish cabinet in Dublin nominally uh, agreed to this in late November. Uh, but this issue of the oath is crucial here. And how does that issue emerge during the treaty negotiations and how can you track the development of that issue or or is it just, you know, bang, that's it, oath of allegiance, no oath of allegiance? So those of you listening should get your legal pads and papers because there's going to be a lot of formulations brought to you now in the next few minutes. Um, This really arises, this issue of oath of allegiance and the wording of same arises partly out of de Valera's concept of external association. We talked about this previously, whereby de Valera suggested, and this was part of the Irish proposals, that Ireland could remain independent, ostensibly an Irish Republic, and of its own accord associate with the British Empire. And on that basis, the... uh, Treaty negotiators' legal team, led by John Chartres, drafted a form of words in which it stated that Ireland, quote, should, for the purposes of the association, recognise the crown as symbol and accepted head of the combination of signatory states, unquote. And that's from the 29th of October. Now, over the next month leading up until the Dáil meeting of the 3rd of December, the Dáil cabinet in Dublin, uh, even though there were objections made to the oath, ostensibly agreed that an oath must be given. The symbol of the crown was crucially important to the British team, to the British state, to the British people, and the Irish team recognised that. And essentially, by the 3rd of November, de Valera has come round to the following wording. I do solemnly swear true faith and allegiance to the constitution of the Irish Free State, to the Treaty of Association and to recognise the King of Great Britain as head of the Associated States, unquote. And the key aspect here is that the King will not be recognised as the head of Ireland, of the Irish State, but as head of the Associated States. So in de Valera's mathematical mind, this was a formulation which would get Irish Republicans off the hook from this official allegiance to the King. And you can see how that to some extent works out in the treaty itself because the uh, the phrase, I think, is fidelity to the king uh, that is used. So perhaps there was some hope that de Valera might, might go for that one. But by the 3rd of December, I mean, things are really getting, uh, we're, 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 we're into the end game. Um, the cabinet, the Dáil cabinet, holds their last meeting before the treaty is signed on the 3rd of December. How are things panning out How are the various members of the cabinet reacting to what they're seeing coming from London? 
Well, this is a remarkable meeting uh, on the 3rd of December of 1921. Days prior, the British had offered what they stated were their last final terms and had given a deadline of the 6th of December by which the Irish team had to either accept or reject the terms uh, on foot of war. And so the Dáil cabinet was well aware of of the final deadline as such. However, fate intervened uh, in very auspicious ways. For example, Michael Collins, along with other members of the plenipotentiaries, was returning to Dublin when their boat struck another uh, fisherman's boat, causing three deaths. And so Collins and two other members of the delegation were, in fact, only arrived in Dublin with 45 minutes to spare before the meeting, exhausted after an 11-hour journey. And they faced now a gruelling seven-hour negotiation, if you'll excuse the term, with the Irish Republican recalcitrance in Dublin itself. It should be borne in mind that at this stage, everyone within the Dáil cabinet had nominally agreed to the fact that they were not going to get an Irish Republic in fact, but rather an Irish free state. They had hoped for association uh, with the British Crown and with the British Empire, which would give them the independence of an Irish Republic. But then when the terms of the agreement were brought to the Dáil cabinet itself, we see a stormy session in which Brua states that the British had selected their men wisely in choosing Griffith and Collins for these subcommittees. Uh, we see de Valera hedging his bets, so to speak, over what form of oath should be agreed, should they agree to the nominal boundary commission for Ulster and so on. And so there's a degree of confusion arising out of this, probably one of the most important doll meetings of the 20th century. And even the official uh, minute keeper, Colin Momurka, notes that there was very little agreement at this final meeting of Dáil Éireann as to what the final terms for the Irish representatives were to be. So they left in a, in a hurry on the 3rd of December back to London, unsure themselves as if to, they were to be go ahead with the treaty as currently constituted or break on the issue of Ulster. Okay, we'll talk about the actual signing of the treaty itself in just a few moments, but I want to just briefly sidetrack and talk a little bit about the the personalities. I mean, there you have a perfect instance of the loathing, the mutual loathing between two people who should have been on the same side, uh, Cahill Brewer and Michael Collins. They hated each other. Um, Was there an element of... Enmity, rivalry, you know, loathing within the two delegations. And were there examples of uh, relationships developing across the table, which were perhaps more intimate, closer, more interesting than some of the relationships on either side of the table, as it were? You're quite right. Politics, you know, was very much apparent at the at the Dáil cabinet, you know, uh, on that date of the 3rd of December of 1921. And of course, between Brewer and Collins, it was personal. Brewer disliked Collins because of his popularity, because he essentially led the IRA in Dublin, certainly during the War of Independence, whereas Brewer was nominally Minister for Defence. De Valera also was, of course, politically astute, a, Machia- a student of Machiavelli himself, and was trying to manoeuvre himself so that he would be on the right side of history and would spend many decades later trying to account for his actions or lack of actions during this period. And Collins was were very well aware that he was being made the scapegoat, as was Griffith. Now, it is interesting to note, as you stated, that there were, of course, a separate dynamic happening in London whereby Lloyd George and Churchill who, of course, loathed Collins in particular during the War of Independence and would have liked to have seen him hanged. I think in many ways they begrudgingly respected him by the end of the negotiations. As I mentioned last week, Churchill invited Collins over to his house 
to share with, you know, in drinks and so on. There was a lot of kind of personal conversations. Churchill and Collins uh, joined John Lavery for lunch and Churchill remarked Collins that he had a document with him from the Boer War where Churchill had stated that there was £10 of a reward on his head by the South African Boers, uh, whereas there was a £10,000 reward for Collins during the War of Independence. And Collins notably stated, prices have gone up since your day. <laughs> I'm sure even though they seemed to be getting on well, Churchill would have been perfectly happy to put Collins up against a wall and have him shot if it came to that. OK, let's talk then about the nub, the, the 5th stroke 6th of uh, December, where the ultimatum is you've got to sign by the 6th of December or war will be unleashed. There's a, a an anecdote, I don't know whether it's true or not, it could be apocryphal. I think it was Lord Birkenhead said when the document is signed that he had signed his political death warrant and Collins is supposed to have rejoined, well, I've signed my actual uh, death warrant. So describe what went on during that 24-hour period. These are the most difficult period of the negotiations because... As I said earlier, the uh, Irish plenipotentiaries had left Dublin confused, uh, unsure as to where their colleagues' loyalties ultimately lay. And I think Griffith and Collins finally agreed at this stage that they were on their own. De Valera ostensibly had abandoned the, the position that they had presented, that this was the final uh, agreement, uh, according to the British. And so they knew that they would have to negotiate the final stages of the treaty on their own. And when they returned to London on the 4th and 5th of December of 1921, again, they met a recalcitrant British who argued that they had presented in good faith that these were the best terms the British could offer. Don't forget, these negotiations dating back to July had been going on for almost six months. The Treaty of Versailles in early 1919 had not taken this long and the British have other responsibilities, political and otherwise, at this time. And so there is a real urgency and, and sense that this is the moment by which peace can finally be agreed between these two nations. Collins and Griffith met with David Lloyd George and the rest of the uh, British team on the afternoon of the 5th. And as in pure dramatic fashion, David Lloyd George presents from his trousers from one month earlier the written promise written by Thomas Jones, which gave effect to Arthur Griffith's verbal promise that he would not break on the issue of Ulster. And this, of course, undermined the entire strategic position of the Irish negotiating team. And it was unknown to Collins and Barton, who were in the room at the time. And Griffith promised on that date, on the 5th of December of 1921, that he would honour that promise. And this left, of course, the rest of the plenipotentiaries with you know, a fait accompli. We either support Griffith or we go home. And to add a coup de grace, David Lloyd George in, you know, purely dramatic fashion stated that he had two letters to be sent. One to James Craig in Ulster stating that an agreement had been signed and another stating that it was war with our nationalist Ireland and war within three days. Which was he to send? And he gave them until 10pm that night to agree. So what happens then? So they return to Hans Place, but... According to the testimonies of those who were present, Collins stated in the taxi on the way home with a heavy heart that he was going to sign the treaty. And when they returned to Hans Place, the rest of the, the plenipotentiaries uh, bickered and argued desperately over whether they should assign. Now, the interesting fact here is that Griffith had apparently agreed to de Valera on the 3rd of December that he would phone 
or he would communicate with Dublin with the final terms of the treaty before signing. But this apparently was not uh, thought about on the evening in question. Such were the pressures and such was the extremity of the position as presented by Lloyd George. And under great duress, uh, we have George Gavin Duffy and Robert Barton finally conceding that they would also sign the treaty of agreement. And so after midnight, now into the 6th of December 1921, we have the plenipotentiaries entering into their cars, leaving the foggy place of Hans Place, which of course was um, covered by British Secret Service agents, and arriving at 10 Downing Street. And just after 2am on the morning of the 6th of December 1921, the Articles of Agreement, the Anglo-Irish Treaty, was signed between the Irish and British sides. Did it come as a huge surprise to the Dublin cabinet? Officially it did, and de Valera responded in kind, almost threatening to arrest those who had agreed to sign the agreement. But ultimately, it was, it was known only days prior that these were the final terms presented by the British. And so therefore, de Valera, I think it's fair to say, saw himself as perhaps being, along with King George V, the final arbiter in any negotiation. And his issue was not that the treaty had been signed, but it had not been signed by him. Okay, well, my guest is uh, Dr. Dara Gannon with his final Downing Street diary. We look forward to your forthcoming book from Cambridge University Press, Conflict, Diaspora and Empire, Irish Nationalism in Great Britain, 1912 to 1922. Thank you very much for taking us through the weeks of, over the last uh, the last number of weeks, the lead up to and the actual signing of that crunch document, the Anglo-Irish Treaty on the 6th of December, 1921. Dara, thank you for joining us. Thank you. After the break, we'll be talking about the tense debates on the treaty in the Dáil, and in particular, the role of anti-treaty women like Mary McSweeney in those debates. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. On this special edition of the History Show, we're talking about the Anglo-Irish Treaty. And now we're going to get into the treaty debates that followed the signing of that fateful document. We knew nothing about the talks in London until the, the announcement of the peace terms. Mm-hmm. The shock that was in the peace terms for most IRA people was that they were asked to give up the idea of an independent Ireland and come down from the high ground of the Republic to the low level of a treaty which involved allegiance to Britain and the surrender of all the things that people thought the movement stood for. From the RTE Radio Archives, that was the voice of Donegal Republican Pather O'Donnell who opposed the treaty. And that gives a sense of the depth of feeling among those who thought that the agreement was a betrayal of what they had fought for over the preceding years. But after the treaty was signed, it was of course by no means guaranteed that it would be accepted by Dáil Éireann. The treaty debates began on the 14th of December 1921 and ended on the 7th of January 1922 when the Dáil voted to accept the treaty by the narrow margin of 64 votes to 57. To talk more about the treaty debates and the personalities involved, I'm joined in studio by two guests. Dr Leanne Lane is lecturer in history at Dublin City University. Leanne has written two books about women who opposed the treaty, Dorothy McArdle and Rosamond Jacob. And she's also the author of a forthcoming volume on another anti-treaty woman, Mary McSweeney. And I'm also joined by historian Gerbert Ferreter, professor of modern Irish history at University College Dublin and author of the recently published book Between 
two hells, the Irish Civil War. You're both very welcome indeed. Um, Dearman, all of the delegates in London signed the treaty, but one of them actually opposed then the treaty later on in the debates, didn't he? They were in turmoil in London in early December 1921. There's an awful lot of emotion swirling around and they are under fierce pressure to make huge decisions. And the position of Robert Barton and, and George Gavin Duffy uh, is, is particularly interesting. George Gavin Duffy obviously doesn't want uh, to sign the treaty, but he does feel duty bound that they act as a collective and that if the others are prepared to sign, he feels it incumbent upon him uh, to do likewise. Robert Barton, however, needs more persuasion. There's a very dramatic image of them getting their hats and their coats ready to go to sign and Barton calling them back. He just can't do it, you know. And Eamon Duggan, another one of the delegation, makes a very emotional appeal to him. And he centres that appeal on the idea of being responsible for the resumption of war. So the stakes don't get any higher, I suppose you could, you could say, not just in political terms, but also in personal terms. And there's a, there's a strong moral pressure, I think, being exerted there. So is, there respects, is there influence from Cousin Erskine as well? Well, you see, the, the delegation um, and the secretary, Erskine Childers, uh, they're quite divided uh, by that stage. And, you know, the British negotiators were aware that there were fault lines within the Irish delegation. So, you know, Childers is despised by those on the British side, but also by some of his own side. And he's not trusted and he is regarded by some as the eyes and ears of de Valera. But Gavin Duffy as well has really split from Arthur Griffith. Uh, and Griffith had some very harsh things to say about Gavin Duffy by the end of the negotiations. So they are quite divided. There's no doubt about that. Um, but you could argue it was Duggan, I suppose, that was ultimately responsible for pushing it over the line because it was his appeal that finally persuaded Robert Barton to do it. But that doesn't mean, even though they've signed the treaty, that they are going to become promoters of the treaty or fully back the treaty at a later stage because obviously Gavin Duffy and, and Barton actually end up getting out of politics uh, by the end of 1923. And Leanne, all six female TDs opposed the treaty, but let's, let's focus on just one of them, Mary McSweeney, uh, sister of uh, Terence McSweeney in, in particular because you've been researching her, her life. She was, a, she was a hugely effective fundraiser when she was uh, touring America. But did the death of Terence McSweeney and the manner of the death of Terence McSweeney affect how she approached the treaty debates? Yes, I think it's really important to kind of move beyond the shorthand that she watched her brother die in Brixton Prison in uh, 1920 and she became vehemently opposed to the treaty and to actually think about what she actually witnessed. So she literally watched him you know, become emaciated by the time he's in his coffin. Uh, one of the IRA guard in Cork City Hall uh, state that he's like a 12-year-old. He's that small. So she has literally watched him. She travels over from Cork very early on and she watches him become emaciated. And she doesn't just watch him become emaciated. She she watches as he becomes irritable, as he becomes sullen. A lot of um, discussion afterwards that he was very polite to his doctors, but actually his doctor's notes show that he was suffering from, as you'd expect, irritability. Uh, he was, you know, very anxious that he wouldn't be forcibly fed if he was unconscious. She's also not just a passive sister, though, while she's in uh, London, she's trying to affect his release without him having to give up his hunger strike. She's, you know, going round to various members of the British 
political establishment. So she goes to Sir Ernie Blackwell. Uh, she goes to Short, and she's you know putting a lot of pressure on, the, on them. She's also discussing with uh, his doctors, and she's seen as you know very difficult woman. And then when he does die, you know he dies making the sacrifice so the future generations can experience full independence. And I don't think she could have done anything other than to be extremely vehemently against the treaty. But that's not to say that I think that she wasn't convinced herself that what was necessary was full independence, a republic, the republic that was established in name in 1916 and fought for during the War of Independence. So I don't want to suggest in any way that she was, you know, just aping his kind of thoughts and sentiments. She was committed herself. But the trauma, and I do think it was a trauma, the trauma that she witnessed, I think, you know, impacted on how passionate she was. I mean, she spoke for, um, you know, as Padraig de Burke, the Irish Independent Journalist, stated longer than the five plenipotentiaries mm. spoke. She got up at 4.25 on the 21st of December and she spoke until seven o'clock. And she was at one point uh, under consideration to be a member of the delegation, wasn't she? Yeah, she says uh, she stated in 1936 to Eileen Nikrulik that, you know, she did approach de Valera wanting to be part of the delegation. But um, de Valera, although she'd done a very good job, as Dermot said, in the bond drive in America, you know, felt that she was too extreme. And she was too extreme, I would suggest. Now, the women in the treaty were accused in the dole of rattling the bones of the dead. Presumably that was because so many of them were related to people who had died either in 1916 or during the War of Independence. Yes, I mean... So to be fair, Markovich didn't really talk about the dead. Ada English didn't talk about the dead. And other men, of course, did talk, did talk about, about the about dead. The yeah. dead yeah. You know, so uh, Count Plunkett stood up and he talked about his son who died in 1916 and he would be true to his son and he would be true to Ireland. I think gender roles have to come into play and these women were kind of seen as somewhat maybe hysterical. I think it's quite interesting that the two independent journalists, the the only people whose clothes are remarked on are the women's clothes. So, you know, Markovich's clothes are remarked on. Margaret Pierce is described as, you know, giving a pathetic speech. Kato Callan is also described as, you know, having a pathetic demeanour. So I, th- I think um, it's gender roles. Women are supposed to sacrifice, you know, and men are supposed to fight. So I think there's much more emphasis on women talking about the dead than there are men talking about the dead. But they did stand up and talk about the dead. One well. of the men who talked, I think, a lot about the dead was Harry Boland. Would that be fair well, I mean, to say? We have to d- d- consider this in the round. I mean, there are 121 TDs who deliberate on and ultimately vote on the treaty. And roughly 100 of them spoke. You know, there are an awful lot of different voices. We do tend to focus, obviously, on these high-profile individuals. And there are a number of different perspectives that are coming out. Harry Boland is actually late to the debate because he has to return from America because he's been involved in another kind of mission, of course, in relation to uh, Irish America and, and trying to sell the Republic abroad. And he's suffering while he's over there, I think, from undue cockiness about the outcome. And he comes back. And what's interesting about him is that he talks about mental reservation, um, blasted those who supported the treaty as hypocrites um, on the grounds that they were suggesting that this wasn't a, a full and final settlement, that they, you know, that was voting for it with mental reservation and he wasn't having any of that because he wanted to be guided by his conscience. But he also mentions that there was a chorus of, a, of approval for the treaty from his constituents. So he's talking about that as well. There's a very interesting description of him by his biographer, the late David Fitzpatrick, as at once an elitist and a Democrat. And he has that kind of haughty uh, demeanour on occasion in relation to his conscience and his righteousness. And of course, there's a very strong strain of that righteousness running through the anti-treatyites. But at the same time, 
you know, the sincerity of what he's saying should not be impugned, you know. And I think we have to give that to those debaters, uh, their sincerity and the depth of emotion that they are feeling. They cover a lot of different areas. But remember, they're not experienced parliamentary debaters. Mm. Uh, These people were elected... First of all, December 1918, you know, they don't have to be re-elected in, in, in uh, 1921. Uh, and of course, even at that stage, you know, during the War of Independence, it was an underground oil anyway. So they, they, they met infrequently. Uh, many of them were on the run. Some of them were in jail, you know. So they hadn't gone through a normal parliamentary maturation, I suppose you could say. So in light of that, you could argue that some of the contributions to the Dáil debates are actually quite uh, impressive. But inevitably, they become personalised. And of course, you've also got the whole question, and, and obviously Boland is, is also carrying a torch uh, in some respects for Eamon de Valera. You know, how had de Valera miscalculated? A lot of the focus of the debate is on whether or not the delegation had the right to sign. What was their status? Were they plenipotentiaries? Were they right to negotiate and conclude? Uh, or were they something else? And sometimes we forget. Another important all debate which happened in uh, September 1921 where George Gavin Duffy had actually questioned de Valera's use of the description plenipotentiaries and what de Valera said in response was that he wanted to create an impression internationally that they were going over within his words full powers so that they could do their best for Ireland. Arthur Griffith threw that back at him during the treaty debates and he said we were oath bound to try and achieve a republic but in not being able to achieve that we were duty-bound to do our best for Ireland, as you said. We've done our best for Ireland. But, of course, for many, the best wasn't good enough. Um, Leanne, you mentioned the speech made by Mary McSweeney, uh, spoke for just over two and a half hours. Is this the beginning of the antagonism towards her of a people, for example, like Arthur Griffith and Kevin O'Higgins? Yes, I mean, she accused Arthur Griffith of sneering at her um, for speaking so long. I think, obviously, he was thinking about, is there going to have to be a recess or not over Christmas? And she does speak for so long that it does kind of force that kind of question to be debated. She also, you know, says to Kevin O'Higgins during the debate that, you know, what they should be thinking about is making sacrifices now so that those in the future can live in a fully independent Ireland. And she says that would she be as young as he is so that in the future she could experience that uh, full independence? I think yes I mean she's obviously you know very impassioned I think she seems to stand and represent all women in Ireland and for that reason there's no enfranchisement of women over the age of 21 until uh, the vote on the treaty is taken because there's some kind of idea that all women are going to be like Mary Maximini and vote against the treaty. Now I I do think she's more complicated and um, she had a very close relationship with de Valera right until he decides to form Fianna Fáil so that yeah she maybe becomes a cipher for extreme republicanism in a way that somebody like Harry Boland doesn't because she's a woman and she's not acting in this kind of passive way she's actually standing up and she's making very principled points in some ways she also uh, argues on that whole issue of mental reservation she says that you know it's cowardly to take that approach mm. and that you you either accept the treaty or you, you reject it but this kind of halfway house doesn't yeah. work so she was very much a woman of principle now she was very fanatical as well in in the speech you know she says if the men fall then we'll send out the women and if the women fall then we'll send out the children so I think though if a man said some of that it would be less problematic than Mary Max Sweeney standing up and she never actually 
mentions Terence's name, which I think is really interesting. She uses some of his words, but she never mentions uh, his name. Now, she does absolutely retort to Arthur Griffith when he comments on the length of the speech that she has every right after the, the 74 days in Brixton Jail and what she witnessed uh, to speak like that. But as I say, I think that if a man was so vehement, it wouldn't have been as problematic that they wouldn't have been seen as this kind of harridan in the way that she was seen. Mm. Um, one of the things that Leanne mentioned there was the recess. Uh, there was a, a Christmas recess. What, if any, difference did that make? Because pres- presumably, or maybe I'm, I'm being naive, people went back to their constituents. No, you're not being naive. And I mean, it, it's not to be underestimated that it was important when you consider that a lot of those TDs are not particularly well knit into their constituencies. Mm. You know, a lot of them have been kind of parachuted into these places uh, on the back of, of the Sinn Féin wave. And, you know, people like Sean McEntee were quite explicit. The unanimous wish of Monaghan was that I should vote for this treaty, but he wasn't going to vote for it. So there is a certain disconnect. There's an interesting question there about how representative uh, the TDs are. You know, we can uh, focus, obviously. Well, we find out in the next election, Um, don't we? Well, you see, this is the thing, though. But, you know, Christmas does allow them to go back and, and test the temperature. And some of them find that they are seriously at odds, these TDs, with their own uh, constituents. There's also the wider issue about those who have commercial interests, who obviously want the peace to be maintained because it's better for business. You've got the Catholic Church and the sermons and the priests. Not all of them, of course, were pro-treaty, but the church does become much more vocally pro-treaty in comparison to some of the mutinous uh, during the War of Independence. That's a factor too. Local bodies. Local authorities, public bodies and local authorities, over 300 of them expressing um, approval of the treaty uh, or satisfaction with the treaty. So there are quite a lot of different pressures there. It has been suggested that had the vote been taken before Christmas, that the treaty might have been defeated in that vote. Of course, we can only speculate about that. But it is about that, that sense of what people might be thinking that can be at odds. I mean, you know, the, the title of my book, Between Two Hells, is actually taken from the Dáil debates because PJ Maloney, who was a Tipperary TD, resented, as he put it, being manoeuvred into a position where we have to choose between two hells. And you can understand, again, the depth of the sentiment behind those lines. But if you go back to some of these constituents, you can see how the words of the historian FSL lines 50 years later uh, resonate Most people, he wrote in 1972, I suspect, do not live their lives by the cold, hard light of abstract dogma explicitly stated. They're concerned about bread and butter issues. Uh, That's not to say that they don't have strong views uh, on these issues and the oath of allegiance and so on. Many of them would. But they're also seeing something else, uh, which is that they have to get on with their lives. Uh, Leanne, Sinn Féin in 1918 campaigned in that famous election uh, for suffrage to be granted to men and women over the age of 21. Yet when the 1922 election uh, comes along, the franchise is not extended. I mean, to what extent? It it, it beggars belief, despite the vote, the the fact that there was a large common demand majority rejecting the treaty. It kind of beggars belief in a way that politicians like Arthur Griffith would have thought that the women of Ireland were going to come were going to come out and they were going to vote against the treaty. So we're not going to give as many of them the vote as we should. Um, in a way, it's not that strange. I mean, one of the reasons why the the suffrage campaign was so protracted, say, even in England, was that both the main English parties didn't really know how women would vote. So the Liberals and the Tories both kind of wondered how women would vote. But yes, I, I think, you know, there was this real sense that the six women in the doll they were so adamantly opposed to the treaty that this would essentially create a situation, this was reflective of, of women at large. I mean, I don't think Sinn Féin was hugely 
interested in kind of feminist issues. You know, during the 1918 election, you know, it wasn't that uh, the representation of the People Act and the vote for certain women was a great feminist victory. It was that it was a tool now to ensure that Sinn Féin could uh, receive, you know, a high uh, turnout at the polls. And women were put to work. They were put to work in the 1918 election, ensuring that all women were on the register, that they all went out to vote. So I don't think in a, in a way that Arthur Griffith was doing anything that, you know, he hadn't maybe signalled before that he would do. Mm. You know, it was all about the, the the national issue. During the Civil War then, three of the, the women that we've been talking about, Kathleen Clark, Countess Markovich and Mary McSweeney, are imprisoned. But it was Mary McSweeney's incarceration that seemed to be most played out in the media. Why was that? Was it because of of her brother's hunger strike? Why was it? Yes, uh, so she's um, arrested on the 4th of November 1922 and she immediately goes on hunger strike in Mount Joy. And actually Dorothy McCardle's jail journal is really interesting because it gives us an insight into what was happening in the prison. So when Dorothy McCardle is arrested on the 9th of November, she goes into a prison that's literally reverberating with Mary Maximini's hunger strike. And it's being manipulated, I would also suggest, because they're writing out. So they're writing to the press so they're courting a kind of um, a press profile and they're Mary McSweeney is anxious to present the Irish government as actually worse than the British government the Free State government is worse than the British government when Terence was in Brixton because of course Annie McSweeney is not allowed in to visit her and Annie McSweeney goes on hunger strike on outside the walls of Mount Joy and also of course the Bishop's Joint Pastoral comes into effect and or is implied and there's all sorts of issues about her receiving the sacraments, etc., which causes her no end of distress. So she denounces the Catholic Church. She writes long letters to uh, the Archbishop of Dublin. And, of course, she denounces the Irish government. And this puts the Irish government in a very difficult position because, the provisional government as it was, in a very difficult position because they don't want to appear weak. But at the same time, this is absolute wonderful propaganda for the anti-treaty side because here you have the sister of the martyr Terence McSweeney, somebody who became an international martyr, somebody who got international recognition for what he did on hunger strike inside the jail and for a while Annie outside. So this is just, it's an awful situation for Cosgrave. And there's people writing into Cosgrave saying, if you let her die, this will be absolutely just horrendous. So I think because of who she was, I think it, it had that mm-hmm. high profile. It was the most high profile yeah. strike and when she's on hunger strike then in Kilmainham in April 1923, it's not maybe as high profile as it was the first time around, I would suggest. Jeremy, um, the debates seem to have been all about Republic, all about the oath of allegiance. Your, your, your former colleague, the wonderful Michael Laffin, I think, has drilled down into the content of the debates and has come up with a statistic that about 5% of the time spent debating was about partition, was about Northern Ireland. Why was it not more of an issue? There's a very obvious reason why it was not more of an issue. If the independence question has not been satisfactorily resolved, well, then partition actually remains a peripheral issue as far as many people are concerned. I think that's the nub of it. Now, there's also, you could argue, uh, a more deep-rooted mental partition, um, which in many respects predates the, the actual physical partition, which has been quite recent. You know, there are those in Sinn Féin um, who don't have an awful lot of knowledge um, of the Ulster situation. You are more likely to get contributions from, from Ulster-based uh, TDs 
on the question of partition. I mentioned Sean McEntee there, or Ernest uh, Blythe, for example, who had that Ulster background. But it is, it's, it's, it's a very peripheral issue during the treaty debates. And even de Valera, when he's proposing his alternative, he said, you know, you can take it that we will accept the same uh, issues in relation to Ulster, or we'll accept the Ulster question as it is, you know, or has been proposed. So he's not suggesting any radical shake-up uh, with regard to that. Uh, but people are focusing an awful lot on, on Republic. What a Republic, or what, what betrayal has taken place, without really defining it uh, very well. And this is part of the, uh, there's a robustness around the word Republic as a kind of a rallying call, you know. But when you begin to actually excavate it, they haven't given an awful lot of thought to it. And this is where some of the debates become interesting about, you know, theory versus practice, about the dead versus the living, and about the welfare of the people needing to take precedence over dogma or, or, or theory or preoccupation. And then, you know, there's an awful lot of, of reference to the nation, and the people, you know, well, what do they actually mean uh, at the end of 1921 and early uh, 1922? Uh, but obviously, it's it, like both sides of the treaty uh, divide take the idea of the republic very seriously. And we do need to remind ourselves of that just because some people went along with it. I mean, you, we mentioned George Gavin Duffy uh, earlier on. He said, my heart is against this treaty. I've done it because it's the rational thing to do. It's not enough for you to cry betrayal and say that you're voting against this, you have to present a credible, rational alternative. And if you can't do that, well, then you have to accept this. Let me just ask both of you in conclusion, do you think that the stance taken by the six female TDs towards the treaty had any influence on the very, very conservative attitude that the Commonwealth government subsequently have in the 1920s to the status of women in Ireland? I do. I think so. And it's very interesting to trace the contemporary sources. I remember reading the Liam de Rochte diaries in Cork, for example, uh, when I was working on that book. And you have this assertion that these women are monomaniacs. They are not normal human beings, he said, with normal human mentality. Yeah, P.S. O'Hegarty does uh, the same well, thing. Well, P.S. O'Hegarty and that famous chapter called The Furies that he mm. wrote the book, The Victory of Sinn Féin in 1924, they are examples of it. But there's something else going on, I think, is that the women do, they all vote against the treaty. Uh, there is a strong sense that women need to go back to something else. You know, that this has been a period back of, up in your box. of upheaval. Uh, go back to your prescribed role. But it's not just about the treaty debates and the fallout from the treaty. It's about what happens in the 1920s and the 1930s. Because many of, many of them retain that intellectually pure position. They're incorruptible, sea-green Republicans. Uh, and they exclude themselves, you could argue, uh, from opportunities in public life and politics because of their attachment uh, to that purity. So, you know, it's not all about what the state does and church and state and the ethos uh, that's developed. It's also about the decisions that they make themselves. And of course, Dorothy McCardle, whom you've written about, despite her devotion to de Valera, campaigns against the 1937 constitution because of the articles relating relation to the to the status of women. But do you think those those six women, that vote, that negative vote, had an influence, uh, uh, Leanne, in conclusion? Yes, I mean, I, I agree with what Dermot is saying. I mean, we think we need to remember also that these are Catholic politicians, you know, both Commander Gaelheel and Fianna Fáil. So I think there is a sense in which maybe the revolutionary period opened up a space for women to help. You know, they were needed. 
during the War of Independence when, you know, a communication breaks down, you know, within the IRA in certain areas, women fill in, they're recruited directly to the IRA, they're needed, but they're no longer needed, so they need to go back to their traditional roles, according to these Catholic politicians. But also, I think that's a really important point that Dermot is saying, you know, Mary McSweeney can't actually speak in the Dáil about anything to do with any any matter to do with Ireland going forward because she's taking this kind of pure abs- abstentionist position. So, you know, there's less female voices then in the doll because Sinn Féin is not participating. I think, you know, it happens in other countries as well during the French Revolution, for example. You know, women are active initially um, in the early years of the revolution, but they're quite quickly then put back into the home and they're Republican mothers. They give to the revolutionary state by taking children through the uh, correct Republican values as they're growing up. So, you know, Ireland isn't very different in that regard, you know, as the state wants to kind of create its image as um, in terms of stability, as it authors a new narrative of national identity identity aren't as pure Catholic and women's role is in the home. We'll have to leave it there, but uh, for anyone who hasn't read the treaty debates, they're available at erocthus.ie. You could judge for yourself if it was only the women who made emotional speeches. Uh, Leanne and Dearman, thank you both very much for joining us on The History Show. That's all we've got time for in this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark McGrath and Jamie Doyle on sound and to our researcher Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.